Nobody owes anybody anything. The only thing that gets attention is really good quality work. And we all know what it feels like for like not to get attention for something that we think is really good and we worked really hard on. But the only thing you can do is is do a better one, like do another one, another 10, another 100. And if you're consistently good, people will start to see what you're doing. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Golden Hour Podcast, produced by the Polar Pro Studio. I'm your host, Dave Mays, and today's guest is Renee Ritchie. Renee is an independent blogger, YouTuber, and podcaster who has been named by Business Insider as one of the top 100 most influential tech people on Twitter, one of the 15 most important Apple analysts and writers, and one of the top 25 gadget gurus. Renee is known for his podcasts including Debug, Iterate, Vector, co-host of MacBreak Weekly, and now his own podcast titled Renee Ritchie. Renee was formerly lead analyst and executive editor of iMore and was also the executive producer of Mobile Nations Broadcasting. Only a few months ago, Renee has gone independent running his own YouTube channel, website, and podcast. And we talk about that transition as well as the skills he has been learning in the photo video space over these last few years coming from a journalistic and photography background. I've been a fan of Renee for years and it was a real joy for me to host this interview. But before we start, I would like to ask that you please subscribe to this podcast if you enjoy learning about creators like Renee. We post new episodes of this podcast every Tuesday, and we have had amazing guests such as Sarah Dietschy, Maddie Hapoya, Joshio, Gerald Undone, and Sorella Moore in our back catalog if you haven't heard already. We'd love to have you be a part of the Golden Hour podcast here at Polar Pro, so please subscribe if you're a creator who wants to learn more about the creative process and learn from other entrepreneurs and business creators. All right, without any further ado, let's listen in on my conversation with Renee Ritchie. I must admit, I uh, I met Alex Lindsay a couple months ago at oh, uh, yeah. iJustine's uh, vlog university thing. It was surreal for me. Now it's surreal for me to meet you because I've been a MacBreak Weekly listener for, gosh, I don't know, eight years, 10 years. I don't know. Oh, wow. Yeah. I had that experience because I used to listen to MacBreak when I used to commute for work. And then one day... I was on it. And then one day when Leo was on vacation, I was hosting it. And it just felt like I was sitting in my dad's chair. It was just very weird. I can't imagine uh, the first yeah, the first time you hear Leo's voice interacting with yeah. you. It's such an iconic voice. Um, yeah. Well, yeah, this is, uh, this is it. This is the Golden Hour podcast. We, we interview a lot of creatives and uh, people on the internet. And you for sure qualify as one of those people. But the thing that uh, is most interesting to me about about you is your journey into cinematography and uh, filmmaking over oh. the last <laughs> you know year two years three years or so as you started Vector and now you're doing your own thing it's been cool to watch you because as a uh, filmmaker myself for the last you know 13 years of my career um, seeing you learn and grow and now you're shooting <laughs> raw and you know it's fun it's like oh look at Renee he's doing a great job let's oh, inc- I'm so you know. embarrassed right now <laughs> <laughs> no it's really exciting to see and honestly um, the the speed in which you've learned to color grade and deal with raw codecs uh, is amazing I don't know I mean were you tapping into some of your friends that have been doing this for a while, like Alex Lindsay, have you, you know, I've been seeing you on Twitter asking for questions, Gerald Undone, I've seen some interactions yeah. with him. Uh, what's your journey been like kind of entering into this Canon raw dual pixel autofocus world of, uh, of the, you know, content creation space? Yeah. So, I mean, in the beginning, I just started off because I wasn't sure what I was going to do. And I was shooting with a couple of GH5s and uh, you know, I, I have friends who done, have done YouTube for years and they're just so good. They shoot like this B-roll and it's cinematic and mm. they tell these stories. And all I really had was my talking head. So I wanted that to be at least as good as possible. And also, I, I'm not really great at capturing what I want in camera yet. So I, I was looking for something that gave me more flexibility. So if the light wasn't good or the white balance wasn't good, I had some form of recovery. And I was used to raw from photographs. So that's what immediately had some appeal and then a few of the people that i that i just talked to a lot like sam from wendover and dave whiskus and thomas frank were getting c200s and they really liked them so i I started looking at those and tyler stallman very kindly helped me find one in canada because they were really hard to get up here especially (laughs) when i was looking for them and i started just shooting with it normally you know on the sd card not trying too much then I slowly went up uh, to the color profile, started shooting in C-Log, 
uh, 3 and then C-Log 2. And then I went to RAW. And as you mentioned, like I'll get these notes from Alex going, you know, it looks like you're making progress, but if you just do X, Y, Z, it'll be even better. Or like these colors would be better like that. And like, he's yeah. very kind, very generous with his time. And so I'd work, I'd talk to like uh, in chat rooms, I would talk to like Thomas and, and Dave and, and Sam and all the people using them. And then I'd, Alex would just be sending me takedowns as is his want, like very kind ones. Uh, and then on Twitter, like you mentioned, um, Mando from Mando Bites, uh, Armando, it's been awesome, yeah, really yeah. helpful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Armando, uh, Gerald Undone, Tyler, uh, all these people have been giving yeah. me some really good advice. And then I just make tons of mistakes and they get pointed out and I try to fix them. <laughs> I remember before uh, before we kind of followed each other or whatever, I, I did tweet you. I said, hey, maybe you should look into getting some, uh, some lights that don't flicker. I remember uh, noticing yeah, that. Yeah, no, you changed my entire setup thank you for doing that (laughs) and i don't know what it was because i'm not sophisticated so uh and jonathan morrison by the way has been a huge help to me too because Mm. he'll send me stuff when when he thinks i can improve it too and he like people know him from the tld tech channel but he he did the fresh prince trailer and that thing is just gorgeous like he's (laughs) he shoots with alexa mini and he shoots with red and also shoots with an ipod touch when he feels like it so I mean, a, a full range there, but <laughs> yeah. you pointed that out to me and I could not fix it. And I'm sure it had something to do with the Hertz, the refresh rate on the camera, but I was shooting in 24, 180 degrees. Weird. And so Jonathan sent me the link for Quasar Science Lights and he said, yes. this will just fix your problem. Those lights are amazing. And um, they're kind of a little, I wouldn't say underrated because in the film community, they're very popular. Um, yeah. They, you know, they're used all the time in music videos. And once you know what they look like, too, you can kind of point them out uh, in certain, you know, people's setups or uh, I see it all the time in music videos, the RGB effect that happens and stuff. But um, yeah, they're not as well known in the kind of YouTuber content creator space, probably because they're a little pricey. They're a little expensive for most people. I think Aperture has really done a great job with their marketing towards uh, content creators. But um, that's awesome. I'm so glad that you've just been learning and growing you've got such a great wealth of knowledge uh, at your fingertips and um it's cool to watch because i had to figure all this out you know all by myself with a little dslr yeah, you guys did the hard work for me <laughs> yeah i think i think it really lends to the fact that everybody that you're mentioning are fans of yours and uh, you know even myself included i've learned so much and oh, grown you. so much listening to your knowledge and the the amount of research and time and effort you put into your work we're all just wanting to help you grow because you've helped us so i mean i'm just speaking for myself oh, but i'm sure that. other people can attest to that um if you're not familiar with renee ritchie go check him out on his new website reneeritchie.com and uh and see what he's doing there but Renee, you've started, I mean, you've started your own thing now over the last couple of months, and it's been exciting to see, yeah. but you, you're no uh, stranger to the tech space and to the journalistic uh, tech world. How did you begin? I've really never heard your story as uh, as a journalist. What Did you go to college for this type of work? I mean, what's what's your journey, especially growing up as a, maybe even a high school or college age? Um, what was little Renee like? <laughs> no, so I mean, I I was I hate being bored. So when I was young, um, I was into a lot of art and a lot of design. And I was lucky that my father was an IBM engineer, so I had an Apple II Plus wow. at home because he didn't want to have to drive to IBM's mainframe back then, you know, downtown. Uh, and then I got various DOS boxes and Windows machines. And at some point, I got an Amiga, and I managed to convince my parents to get me a video toaster. And I <laughs> would sit there and do like the best I could with little G.I. Joe and, and Transformer toys and try to make little mini movies out wow. of them. But I would watch like Babylon 5 and I tried to, I forget, it wasn't Lightroom, it was Light something, Light like they had a 3D rendering package, transitions, all of that. And I just, I tried to use it as much as I could. Uh, and then I ended up, I went to college for uh, art and I ended up getting a job as a web developer just because there weren't many back then. And I ended up working in product marketing because after I, I just I, I was too impatient to wait for people to write the web pages, so I just wrote them, and people liked what I wrote, so I got more and more marketing work to do. Uh, and then I was listening to I was I bought a Palm Trio, um, you know, back then before there was iPhones, I bought a Palm Trio. The BlackBerry was too much like a pager for me, and I wanted something that did more computery stuff. And I was listening to the Trio Central Trio Cast, which was Dieter Bone back at the time. 
And then I saw the iPhone keynote and I just, I did not know that a computer outside of sci-fi could look or work like that. Just the interface and how it moved and the elasticity and the inertia and all of those things. And they started a website, a branch off from Phone Different, uh, from Trio Central called Phone Different. And I noticed they weren't updating it. I'd see all this news and I started bugging Dieter saying, why, why isn't the news up? And he's like, oh, my writer quit. And he, why don't you just write something? <laughs> so I started writing and then I would bug him to do more. And he's like, and he was busy trying to manage Trio Central and Windows WM experts and they were buying Crackberry. And I think at some point yeah. he was launching Android Central and he's like, well, why don't you just run the site? I'm like, okay, I will. So I kind of complained my way into um, a web career. And then I, w- I was working in, in marketing for enterprise software, which is as deathly dull as it sounds. And I just, I wanted to do this. So uh, Dieter left and started The Verge and Kevin Michaluk, who was running Crackberry, took over the network, which was smartphone experts. Then it became Mobile Nations. And he hired he hired me full time. So for a few years there, iMore was... You know, we had a few other writers, but I was mostly doing iMore, like morning, noon, and night for years. When did your kind of love and uh, discovery of Apple come to be? Yeah, so I had the Apple II as a kid, and then I was using the Amigas, and Amiga went out of business. And I sort of, I had a PC laptop for work, and I didn't love it. Um, so I got a Performa Mac this before Steve Jobs came back. I didn't love that either. So yeah. I was kind of just existing. And at work, I just every year, because I was doing a lot of the graphic design and a lot of the websites, part of their system was just every year I got the latest Dell laptop, whatever they were selling to Enterprise at the time. And it came with like Dell on-site service and it needed it because it was always breaking down. And then Vista came out and I got the new laptop and I opened it up and I got a message on the screen saying this computer does not work with the screen. And I'm like, I just got a brand new computer from Dell and there's no drivers for the graphics card they put in it. And I was complaining, and the IT guy who was excellent there, he's like, look, I'm going to say something to you. We're just going to buy you a Mac. Like there's <laughs> you, When you're young, I get it. You want, to, you want to move, you want to customize, you want to do all these things, but you just need to get work done, and we're going to get you a Mac, and you're just going to get your work done. So they got me a 17-inch MacBook Pro. It was running OS X Tiger at the time, and then I just, it, it was a battleship, but I loved it. It took me a, about a, a week to get familiar with, like, one thing's on the left, then it's on the right. Where is this? And then I was just using it faster and better than any computer I ever used before. And I, I would assume that iMore was, you know, it was called iMore. So you were covering a lot of Apple devices at the time, right? No. So that's the funniest part is that it was phone different at first and it only covered the oh, iPhone. And okay. then the iPad was announced and we started covering the iPad too. And a very vocal minority of the commenters were livid angry, saying, this is an iPhone site. It says it in the name. How dare you talk about the iPad? <laughs> and we were like, the iPhone comes out once a year. The other six months, like, we'll talk about it. But like the other six months, we need to talk about something else. So uh, we changed the name to the iPhone blog. And then we, had, we changed it again to Tippy, just the initials, because we figured it could stand for the iPhone or the iPad blog. And there was Tua, the unofficial Apple website, and a bunch of other initial sites back then. So it wasn't as weird as it sounds. But it took that before people started actually begrudgingly letting us talk about iPad. And then I, and there's one thing is like, I don't like complacent audiences. Like if my audience is not semi-pissed off at me, I don't think I'm doing my job. Like I don't want to just speak in an echo chamber. I don't want to tell you what you want to hear. I want to always expand the conversation. So when we had the the name iMore and they weren't sure what to do with it, I said, let us use it because it really is so much more. It's Max and there's these rumors of a watch and there's all this stuff and it's really interesting and we can write about all of it. And they said, okay, we're a bit nervous, but fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Kevin was all in on it because he's super excited about everything. So we switched <laughs> to iMore and started covering Macs and the whole gamut of stuff. Cool. And I mean, if you ever have a question about an iPhone uh, feature or settings, often if you just search how to blank, an iMore uh, link is yeah. the first result. And I don't know what your SEO uh, person does over there, but they do a great job. <laughs> so the secret to that is like, I, I was that person for a long time and I never wow. did anything. Like I didn't even think about SEO. Um, I just had this idea that like every site was doing news and I never wanted iMore to look like another site. Like if you looked at Mac Rumors or 9to5Mac, I didn't want iMore to be like the third best news site that you went to or even like the second best news site um 
even the first best news site, frankly, because there's so much more to it. And because I had a marketing background, my thought was, I need to help you pick a pick your next product, um, mm -hmm. tell you what you can do with it. You're going to have like some fear, like, did I make the right choice? So I can help you get over that anxiety. And then like when you get bored using all the basic stuff, we can help you with the, the more advanced stuff, like the cool stuff you can do with it. And when you're ready for your next thing, we can help you, you know, sell it or trade it or give it away and, and get your next thing. And that started us doing a bunch of help content and then guides. And that's really what grew iMore mm. and, yeah. and made it show up in Google. Because anytime someone had a question, we're like, we can help, we can answer that, let's do it. Yeah, no matter how basic or, you know, some sites might be like, oh, that's too basic. I don't, you know, I don't, people know how to go into settings and change the brightness, but no, people are searching yeah. those types of things and uh, it's important. Yeah, when I, was a, when I was younger, I did tech support, like one of my first jobs for salespeople. And there is, there is no question that like, why can't I get my email when the computer is off? Like there's, there's just oh, so wow. many questions. Like why is there no power button on an iPhone? It's like, there is, it's just right on. Oh, oh, I didn't realize, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. and, and it's not that they're dumb. They just didn't, they, they didn't know it. And then you help them and they know it. Yeah. I, I had a friend who worked at an Apple store. He said one time a lady came in and said, I would like a computer with the internet on it. And, uh, yeah. you know, so there's all sorts of people. It's okay. You know, that that's, it's important. And I, I would assume that the majority of the money for that site came through advertisers and, and also affiliate income, I would assume, right? At first they were, so it got started with this, this young guy named Marcus Adelson who came from Sweden and started living in Florida and he just loved Palm phones, but he couldn't find anything for them. So he opened up a store. I think it was a trio. I forget what it was called, the trio central store or something and began like opened a warehouse, began stocking all that stuff. And so in the beginning there was no ads. It was all just e-commerce. Like you would go to the site, read the articles, buy a case, buy a battery, buy those things. And then when, as Amazon grew, people started finding things cheaper and faster and more voluminously on Amazon. So the direct, like the direct sales revenue dropped and they started doing more and more ads. But at the ads, you're at the mercy of Google. So to sort of hedge against that, they started getting more and more into e-commerce again. But like you said, through affiliates, because you, it was, you, you couldn't compete with your own warehouse anymore. Yeah. And we've seen like both Google and Amazon, like your one search algorithm change or one affiliate revenue change from disaster all the time. So you just try to hedge your bets and balance your income streams as best as possible. During that time, there was uh, a bit of a boom of uh, podcasts. Um, yeah. And over the last, you know, decade now, people are calling it the golden age, the, the, the new golden age of audio. Um, a podcasting revolution kind of happening with uh, shows like Serial and um, all the incredible stuff from, you know, This American Life and that kind of stuff. Yeah. But then you also have in the tech space shows that I consume on the regular that my wife uh, makes fun of me for like ATP <laughs> and uh, MacBreak Weekly yeah. and the iMore show and all those types of things. When did that all start for you? The podcasting kind of world that came out of the iPod, iPhone kind of era. Yeah, so I mean, Dieter and back then Mike Overbo were doing the trio cast and they started doing the phone different cast. And mm -hmm. then I forget what event it was. It was one of the early, early WWCs, like maybe WWDC 2008. They asked me and I forget, maybe Casey Chan, some, someone else to join them. And that was my first podcast. And then Mike left and he couldn't do the podcast anymore. And Dieter was getting busy, so I started alternating with him. He would do the show one week, I would do the show one week, and then he stopped being able to do them, so I took over doing the shows. And that was like 2008, 2009. So I did the iMore show. Well, back then it was called Phone Different, or, or I forget, Phone Different Show or something. From then on, uh, and then as stuff grew, I started, I did a, a show called Iterate with Mark Edwards, really, really good designer, and Seth Clifford, also a really good designer, just about... Uh, mobile design, and I did debug with uh, Guy English, which was originally sort of like the talks we wanted to have at WWDC, but never had time for, and I think ended up becoming like a really good historical record of some of the early Apple and iPhone and iPad uh, engineers and sort of what they did and and what they went through. And, wow, I haven't heard. And of then that I did show. Vector, and that's I'm check that out. <laughs> yeah, the they have some so. Uh, like we got um, Don Melton, who was the person who led the Safari team at Apple and Nitin Ganatra, who led the iPhone apps team at Apple uh -huh. on a, a few of those podcasts and the stories they shared. It's like 
why was there no MMS in the original iPhone? And they're like, well, turns out you needed a WAP browser. And because we had Safari, we never built a WAP browser. And then all of a sudden we couldn't do MMS. So we had to figure out, we had to go back and add this in. And these are the things you learn while you're making wow. the phone. That's some great info. So it was just fascinating. Yeah, fascinating stuff. Also, I think a lot of people don't realize podcast, the word itself, was made up by Apple. And uh, yeah. it's just, it's one of the few things that they allow people to to write and say without a copyright on it. Um, yeah, absolutely. It's pretty amazing how how locked down and uh, proprietary Apple can be sometimes and how open and amazing podcasting really is. I think the basic rule of any company, and it's hard to see because they all act so differently, is that they keep proprietary what makes them money and they try to open whatever makes their competitors money. Mm. So like Google, the search algorithm, the YouTube algorithm, AdSense, all of those things completely locked down. But like browsers, which was like a micro, and opera, mobile operating systems, which made Microsoft money, open all that up. Even yeah. Apple, like Safari, totally open source. Why we don't make any money on it, but like Microsoft does. It's kind of nuts. Like I'm sure you see the same analytics, but like 80 percent of this show, sometimes more, is is all on the Apple Podcast app. Even yeah. though I I personally prefer Marco Armit's app, uh, Overcast, yeah. and really love it um, with the smart speed and the voice boost and all that. But yeah. Um, they've really kind of monopolized it in a way. It's pretty amazing, even though they're not making money off of it. Are they really not making any money off of podcasting? No, they, and they, they're putting more and more resources. I mean, maybe they will one day, but they've, they've put, back then it was small. Like it was a directory. Mm-hmm. I think they had one editor and maybe, maybe two editors. And that was very, that was about it. Like they, it was part of Eddie Q's team. Wow. Very minimal stuff happening. And now they have many people on the, on the, podcast app team they have you know editors they have marketing they have a marketing team now uh, and they're really investing in it and i think they see it as a value add like it, it makes the iphone more attractive mm-hmm. and you know and, and to a lesser degree the ipad and the apple watch and the and the mac by having that content available especially as it grows in popularity well what's i think what really made it grow in popularity is what grew a lot of these apps like uber and airbnb and all these companies that came out of the LTE kind of revela- uh, revolution yeah. where we started getting faster um, streaming abilities on device. And that's really when I saw the boom with podcasts. You know, if you have fast enough internet uh, on your phone, no matter where you go, you can listen to any show at any time at the gym, at the park. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean, it, it is interesting though, because it still is in a way a niche uh, market. Um, my parents still don't understand what a podcast yeah. is and they're like well, you listen to a two-hour conversation with three people every week what do you what do you how do you have time to listen to that it's like like they get the radio drama part like like uh, i think like the true crime stuff it, it taps into their radio serial drama from their youth that's right where like th- like like my parents they didn't have tv when they were young so they would listen to like the lone ranger and superman and all this th- and you know um, all the all the bbc radio stuff that yeah. they would do like dune and all these things and that sort of translates, but the rest is like talk radio, but it's not like with ads every few minutes. They're not sure about it. Yeah, exactly. Did you find that you found something there with podcasting when you when you started doing it that you said to yourself like, "Wow, this is I never considered being a radio host, but this is actually is something I enjoy." I mean, you seem to have a passion for it. You've been around doing it now for over a decade. I, I liked learning about it. Like I learned early on, and especially from listening to Leo, because I used to commute sometimes two hours each way uh, when I was working in enterprise and I listened to a bunch of his shows and I noticed that he could do like Mac break weekly and then windows weekly and the same story would come up and he would act like not, not that he hadn't heard it, but he would let his guest explain it to him, even though you knew that he knew all about it. Mm -hmm. And then I started to understand that hosting was like a skill, a very different skill than just being a guest and being part of a panel like you'd hear some people who weren't sure about, like they were new to panels, they would try to say everything and like not leave anything for anybody else to pick up on or they would change topics before anybody else could could join into the previous topic. And there were all these skills that you had to learn. Like uh, if you have more than one person on the podcast, you say like, uh, Bob, what do you think about blah, blah, blah. Like you say someone's name and then if they're not paying attention or they queue in or no <laughs> one's sure who's to go, who's going to go next. Uh-huh. And there's all these little things you pick up that make it work really well. And then when it works really well, it feels yeah. not like music or dance or anything, but it, it, it feels like, like a thing, like an event. 
I listen to Mac Break Weekly every week. I'm one of those people, and uh, I I still love it. You. And you're you're frequent guest of it. Like I love the the combination of the people that that you guys have on there. I love how yeah. Andy will like <laughs> he'll sometimes just transition a topic into like theater or opera like out of nowhere, yeah. and then and then the way that Leo is able to just like not even acknowledge what he said and just move on to the next topic. It cracks me up every yep. time. <laughs> yeah. Cause Andy Anatko is amazing and he's so entertaining to listen yeah. to. And even though I have zero passion or desire for classical music or drama or theater, every time he talks about it, for some reason I'm thoroughly interested. Yeah. And then the topic goes back to like, you know, the China, uh, you know, uh, tax laws or something, you know? Yes. <laughs> That's the other thing too, is you guys are able to talk about topics. I'm like, man, nothing happened this week. What are they going to talk about? And it's like, well, the Chinese yeah. tax laws and, uh, the tariffs on this and that, and somehow you guys turn it into a show. I don't know how you do it. Cause you might have literally nothing that week and it turns into something that's entertaining to listen to. I think the secret to Mac break weekly and, and this is a lot of this belongs with Leo is that he gets a group of people together who generally want to have a conversation because you listen to some podcasts and nobody talks or everyone talks over each other or like people say two things and then stop. Um, and with Mac break, it's like, we all want to have this conversation. So Andy will say something, then I'll say something, then Alex will say something, then Lori will say something and I'll say something again. And you know, sometimes he has to move us on, but we generally, we, we, we are passionate about discussing this stuff. Mm-hmm. So it ends up being a really good conversation. I think that's sort of the key to his success is that he's yeah. good at prodding us, getting us going and then letting us go and sort <laughs> of just feeding us, like feeding that fire, putting a little bit of kindling on every few minutes. So we keep going. So YouTube, it's a completely different beast when it comes to content creation compared to podcasting. One of the beautiful things about YouTube is the, the ability to, uh, really dive into analytics and see where your viewers are coming from, see where they're dropping off. Um, you know, you can really dial in search terms and whatnot. Whereas podcasting is kind of like, there's not a ton of analytics there. And I, I know a lot of, uh, legit, you know, podcasters want to keep it that way. They want to keep it open source and not all this, all these numbers like YouTubers, but you're, you're juggling both of these platforms. Um, you know, let's talk about that. YouTube, the YouTube world. What has your journey been like there? Because over the last five years, really, YouTube has completely changed from what it was when it first came out, when it was really just a place to host videos. <laughs> and uh, pe- people like Pewdie- uh, PewDiePie and Philip DeFranco were on it and uh, others, but still it was just more of like, okay, maybe we have a blog and we're going to host our videos on YouTube. We're not going to focus on you know, this game plan to grow and build a following. And a lot of blogs still do that. They still just use it as a, as a host or they don't even, they, they host it on their own site and they run their custom player with their custom ads on it because that's how they get revenue. Yeah. I think it's still a big divide. Wouldn't you think it's a reverse situation nowadays where you build a huge YouTube following and then you have a blog to support the YouTube channel? <laughs> no, I think for individual creators, yes. But I think for like large corporations, because when I talk yeah. to, like when you look at them, if you look at IDG, which runs like all the Macworld PC world sites or Future, which runs like half the tech, the tech internet, they could care less about YouTube. YouTube is not even on their radar. Like maybe they'll have like one or two experiments on it, uh-huh. but they want to, they want a video. Uh, like, like their, I think their dream is uh, we have a page about the MacBook Pro. We have a page about the Nintendo Switch. We have a page about the Surface Book. And we have a video on that page telling you why you should buy it. It's running in our custom embedded player and it auto runs as soon as you land on that page. It serves an ad before it runs. You have no control over it and we count <laughs> a view and charge the advertiser uh-huh. and we make way more money than YouTube would ever pay us. Sure. I think that's like their ideal video model. <laughs> but then you have people like Marquez who yes. has built an empire of, you know, he's getting more views than the tonight show. And yeah, absolutely. He's a team of what? Four guys. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know. It seems like he's only got three or four guys that work for him. Yeah, no, it's amazing, but that's a person and a person is not what a, uh, yeah. an enterprise, a, like a giant media company. And wants. That's, I have a lot of respect for Dieter and, uh, Neelai over at the verge because yeah. they are able to kind of balance that really well. They even have multiple hosts on their channel and yet it's a cohesive YouTube channel as well as a, uh, active, uh, blog on the verge.com. So, uh, and you Vox were... does it right. Like all the Vox properties do really well with that. Oh yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, I mean the, the Vox channel, just the plain old channel. Yeah. Right. And then, um, but you were, you were 
just a few months ago doing that. You were on Vector, which was a part of iMore, correct? And then yeah, um, yeah. Now you're you're doing your own thing. What has that transition been like? Going from the kind of corporate viewpoint of you know YouTube channel tied to the website. Now you have your own blog and website, but um, you know it seems like you're pushing into the podcast YouTuber space more than necessarily growing a huge yeah. Uh, blog. Yeah, no, I mean, for sure. So what happened was before Mobile Nations was bought by Future, you know, uh, Kevin, again, my my boss, he was very savvy about, you know, the rise of YouTube. And he tried doing his own channel for a while, but he was really busy with running the network. And so he hired Michael Fisher to do the Mr. Mobile channel. Michael Fisher was at Pocket Now back then. And that grew out, that grew really well. So we tried a couple other channels. And then I, I, I just felt like, I was doing more and more management stuff and I wasn't enjoying it. It was just like a lot of like, I liked making, helping make other people better, but I still, I, I have a bunch of stuff that I want to say and I, I felt like I couldn't say it anymore. So he very kindly let me start a YouTube channel. No, like no expectation. I think he didn't think I'd do very well, honestly, but <laughs> like no expectations, no pressure, no, no like agenda. Uh, and it worked. And, but it, as it grew, it became for the reasons I mentioned, it just, it wasn't fitting in with future like they they would have really preferred that I just do scripts about why you should buy Nintendo Switches all day. That would be much more valuable to them, yeah. which is part of the reason I left. And then the, the whole thing I like about YouTube, and it really is a double-edged sword because we're so dependent on YouTube. But for example, let's say um, I, the new iPhone comes out and you do a podcast on it. And I listen to your podcast. All I'm going to see in most players, like I know Breaker is different and Google's trying to be different, but most players... I'll just see other episodes of your show. You know, mm -hmm. that's what's available. But with YouTube, if I watch your video on it, I'll see like Marquez's video in the sidebar, Jonathan's video, Justine's video, Dieter's video. And I'll be able to go through and see more of what I want to see. And that lets me discover more channels and more people. And that's a huge growth engine for audience and for everything else that just doesn't exist in podcasts and is almost the opposite. Because in the old days of, of blogs, you wanted to keep people on your page. Like there were exceptions like John Gruber and Jim Downerpole who linked out really well all the time. But a lot of sites buried the lead and re buried the link and rewrote the and rewrote the story so that you'd stay on their page. And Google Google uh, Google search index does that. Like they reward time on page and link authority. And so the incentives are are strongly tied to being your own island. Where on YouTube, they they reward watch time across it. So like if people watch your video, that's great. And if they keep watching YouTube, that's great. And being in the sidebar is important. And being on the, like all these things make people seem to want to work together more in the thought that you raise all boats. And that's what I really like about the YouTube community. Like I'm relative, I dabbled in YouTube before, but I'm relatively new to, to doing YouTube, like being YouTube first. And people have just been so kind and helpful and like from you to everybody, just so supportive that that's something that I've never seen anywhere else before. Absolutely. I, you know, just to make it brief, because people who listen to this have heard me say this before, but I, I started as a, a wedding and documentary filmmaker in Nashville um, and did music videos and all sorts of things in the film industry. And I, I thought I wanted to be in the Hollywood kind of you know, race and uh, climb the ladder of being a director and moving to Hollywood and doing that that whole thing. And then I just kind of stumbled onto YouTube because I was bored and uh, just started making reviews about cameras. And um, I discovered this whole world and fell in love with it. And I realized that I didn't want to go the Hollywood route. I love, you know, I love making uh, YouTube videos. Um, yeah. And a lot of the people that we've interviewed on the show, from uh, Maddie Hipoya to Gerald Undone, Armando Fiera, um, they've all found that same thing. And the com camaraderie that's there is is pretty amazing, especially in our um, in our niche. You know, I, I, I can't speak to the food uh, <laughs> the food channels and the makeup tutorial people, sure. and but at least in the tech and the camera space, uh, and more so camera space for me, and obviously more more so tech for you. Um, it seems to be a very, I mean, overall, uh, a pretty good community of people. Now, I, I can't speak to uh, what it's like being a female creator. Uh, we've we've interviewed Sarah Dietschy and uh, Kitty yeah. from Atola Visuals, and they've shared some really uh, disheartening stories about that because there's a bunch yeah. of stupid idiots on the internet. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, overall, 
uh, it's a, it's been a, a great journey for me, and it's I mean you're at uh, over sixty thousand subs, and you've only been uh, on your own YouTube channel now for a, uh, a month. <laughs> so that's a great yeah. job. <laughs> that's very very oh, fast thank you. growth. I mean, it's nice. <laughs> it's nice. I mean, that people are finding me. Um, we'll see. We'll see how long it lasts. Well, that's the beauty of the sidebar, right? If if somebody was watching yeah. the Vector channel. Um, chances are one of your new videos might be recommended on the sidebar and they're like oh and then i notice you are reminding people to subscribe no matter what which video because yeah. you're having to restart and uh the last show that we put out on the, on the golden hour was with uh, kai w i don't know if you're familiar with him but he yeah. started with a channel called uh digirev tv 11 years ago and uh he made the transition and it was a successful transition so um there's plenty of examples of people who have who have been able to succeed like that um the best advice i got and it was weird like it i and i didn't think about it and now i'm kicking myself is dave whiskus i was originally changing everything and he's like stop don't people are not going to be able to find you keep the avatar as close to the avatar as you can <laughs> keep your set the same close to your set as you can because when they hover over they'll see you they'll recognize it and yeah. like, if everything changes they are going to have no idea who you are exactly it's yeah exactly that's a great point i, I was actually going to uh, I'm glad you brought that up because I was going to point that out. I was like, I noticed your set hasn't changed at all, which is a good thing. I'm interrupting this podcast briefly to tell you guys about the brand new DJI Mavic Air 2 Cinema Series filters from Polar Pro. If you aren't aware, the newest drone from DJI just came out. It's called the Mavic Air 2. It's the second generation of the more affordable, smaller, lightweight drone from DJI. The thing that makes the Mavic Air 2 stand out against the lineup of other drones from DJI is the fact that the size of the drone itself is so complex and easy to travel with, but the quality and performance of the camera built into it is still high enough to be considered a professional camera. But like all drones with built-in cameras, there's one thing that you really need to get the most cinematic shots possible, and that is a neutral density filter. Well, you're in luck because Polar Pro has just announced the brand new Cinema Series filters for the Mavic Air 2. There's two packages that you can choose from, the Vivid Collection and the V&D Filter. First, let me tell you about the Vivid Collection for the Mavic Air 2. The kit includes ND8, ND16, and ND32, all with polarization filters built into them. Those three filter strengths are really gonna handle most situations that you're gonna face with your drone. You wanna make sure that your shutter speed is set double to what your frame rate is. So for example, if you're shooting at 24 frames per second, you want your shutter speed to be around 1 48th of a second. And because the drone doesn't have the ability to adjust your aperture, once you set your shutters down to 1 50th of a second, even at the lowest ISO settings, the image is gonna be completely blown out and overexposed. That's why when you're using a drone, you have to have an ND filter to keep your shutter speed at the right setting when you're shooting outdoors. Now the thing that makes the Vivid Collection from Polar Pro so great is the addition of the polarization filter attached to the ND itself. Adding a polarizer to your camera can completely change its capabilities by removing reflections, cutting glare, and increasing color saturation. Now the other filter that we're selling is the V&D filter, which is very similar to the very popular Peter McKinnon V&D that we sell as well. You can buy the V&D in either a two to five stop V&D or a combo set that comes with a two to five and a six to nine stop V&D system. This is gonna be the most versatile setup that you can get. Basically with only two filters, you're able to cover between two to nine stops of ND filtering with everything in between. It's really amazing what you can do with these filters. All of these filter sets are on our website and for a limited time during this special launch, you can save $10 off all Mavic Air 2 filter sets. So if you just put a pre-order down for the Mavic Air 2 or you're considering getting the Mavic Air 2, now's the time to jump on getting your full cinema setup by buying the Mavic Air 2 filters from Polar Pro. So again, go to polarpro.com and check this out. The new filter setup for the Mavic Air 2, $10 off only now, go check it out. Now, let's go back to my conversation. Now, we were talking on Twitter about the C500. Have have you stepped up yeah. to the C500 from the C200? Yeah, and I, I blame several people for that. Like, uh, again, Dave got one. Thomas Frank got one. Mm -hmm. I saw Armando writing about it. I've been watching a lot of Armando's videos and a lot of the Crimson Engine, Rubidium from the Crimson Engine's videos just to learn how to do lighting. Yeah. And they both were talking about that camera. And then a couple people I knew got them right away. And you're talking about the Mark II, correct? Yes, absolutely. Okay. 
Um, and I like I love raw, but it adds uh, like an hour at least to my workflow because I yeah. grade on the card on this, and then I export that as ProRes four two two. Then I import that, and Tyler Stallman helped me with the workflow because he's so legit. Yeah. Um, but it's longer, and with the ten bit, I can just pull in the. It's small enough that I can just pull in the file and work on it right away, and it saves me that round tripping. Yes. Um, and that's. Daily video, that's a bit, that's a lot, that's a, it takes a bit off my grind. Absolutely. I think a lot of people don't realize that uh, a lot of movies and TV shows, uh, mostly TV shows, um, shoot in ProRes on the Alexa. They don't shoot raw because it's just too much yeah. uh, of a strain, especially when you're dealing with, you know, hundreds of people involved and it's going down the chain of special effects people and whatnot. You know, 4K ProRes is fine uh, or 10 bit. Um, yeah, so that's that's awesome. I mean, it's it's kind of funny that you have to spend so much money just to get that feature uh, when other companies uh, make cameras that do those things and they're cheaper. But the truth is, is the Canon system is is really great. The color science is great, and mostly that I love the colors. The autofocus, Canon. the autofocus is yeah. Um, when you're a solo content creator, it's really necessary. Although you were shooting on the GH5, which is kind of notorious for having uh, sucky autofocus. <laughs> yeah, I didn't use it. But the thing is, like, I used to shoot on Canon. So like back when I was doing, like, I used to do more photojournalism. And by that, I mean, like, Apple didn't use to stream the keynote. So I'd have to go there with a 7200 millimeter lens, sit in the audience, take photographs, upload them, like plug into Lightroom directly, upload them because like there was just no video coming out for a while and then apple started streaming everything so i didn't i didn't have to shoot with cameras anymore and i still remember like i had a 5d mark iii and i was going around wwdc in the middle of the night and it was the sensor was so good it looked it looked like early evening and i loved it but i I didn't have to shoot with cameras anymore but i had accumulated uh, quite a bit of canon glass and the gh5 i only bought one lens for it so going back to Canon, let me use, like I was shooting with my 200 millimeter macro and I'm using the 50, which I love. And I have a Tamron, like I have a bunch of lenses for it. So it's, I, I love using that glass and I love the color that comes out of it so much. On the C500 Mark II is a full frame size sensor as well. Yeah. So you're actually getting the full use of that lens now, finally. Yeah. Um, whereas on the C200, you know, you usually people are shooting on that sigma uh 18 to 35 because of the yeah. 1.8 aperture which is amazing but um did you just like throw away the 200 did you sell it or do you still have it or what no so i'm actually i'm still using it because canon it, it was almost impossible to get a power cord and like i know the battery lasts forever but uh when i'm doing video i don't ever want to think about the battery so when i have it set up as an acam um I just want to plug it in. And my power cord literally arrived yesterday. So I've been using it. I started off using it for B-roll. So when I did the iPhone SE review, that was the first time I used the C500 and I was using it for B-roll. Oh, okay. And now uh, this week, I'm going to swap it out for the ACAM. Nice. And I'm probably going to get rid of the C200. Yeah, I would because sell I think it that, yeah, before it loses Yeah, value. I don't think I need... <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, especially with the Canon EOS R5 that's coming out soon. That's... that's yes. Yeah. That's the thing, I think right? that'll be a much better B-roll camera. I know. I'd, I'd be curious to... I mean, I know you don't review or compare cameras on your channel necessarily, but especially cameras that cost over $10,000. Uh, I don't know if your audience would yeah. uh, necessarily enjoy that, but I would enjoy seeing a comparison with the C500 Mark II with the new R5, which is going to be great. So anyways, we're probably talking... Yeah, well, I think that Gerald does those so well. Like, I I can do iPhone and like I've done iPhone versus Pixel and uh-huh. different iPhones, but like I have not been able to do anything <laughs> approaching what like Gerald or, or some of the other people do on on those reviews. And the watch time on the comparison videos are great. Just just letting you know, because it's like yeah. people will will pause, they'll they'll go back, they'll watch it at like half speed. So like the retention on a comparison video is insane. So. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, keep doing them. <laughs> um, <laughs> For sure. I'm curious about your workflow. Uh, I just, I think a lot of creators always want to <laughs> like learn from other people. What's your workflow look like when you're uh, putting together a video? So um, I'm lucky that I've written so much. Like in my first few years at iMore, I was writing like a million words a year. So I got really good at sort of taking an idea and rapidly turning it into an article. And that's helped me with video because I can pretty much get an idea, sit down and break down the video really fast, uh, usually like an hour or, or you know, hour and a half. 
and then I shoot it and I make a ton of mistakes still. And I'm not really good at capturing what I want in the camera. So I do a lot of that, like the story building uh, in the edit. But I take the card out of the camera. I pull it in. I do very basic color grading. I use um, uh, Armando's. Uh, right now on the C200, I'm using Armando's uh, Ari, uh, Ari yeah. LUT for the C200, which I just love. It looks great. It looks gorgeous. And then I do a minor, like, a little bit of teal orange to it because I'm starting with the basics and once I feel comfortable yeah. with that I'll explore some of the other ones uh, then I turn it one of the things I learned from the Final Cut team which you know I was struggling at a, an event uh, and I I was like I'm, oh, I'm just I'm cutting and pasting this stuff and I've got eight versions of this on it yeah. and, not, and they're like dude just make a make a compound clip yeah <laughs> and then you can go into the compound clip you can you can change things mask uh-huh. things alter the audio and it'll propagate to everything in the project yep. and i'm like oh my god why haven't i been doing this for years <laughs> exactly it's amazing and then the uh, copy and paste attributes too it's such a weird it's command shift v i yeah. think um and then yep. shift option command v is uh just yes. to automatically paste everything um but yeah, yeah uh very cool and do you do everything in camera in terms of the audio do you just run it straight into the xlr uh, or do you sync that in post as well yeah no, I have a. I used to sync it in post, but um, when when I had the GH5, I used the Hale microphone I used for MacBreak, and I and I synced it in mm. post because Final Cut syncing was usually really good. Yeah. But with the C200, I have the Sennheiser um, microphone just above me, and that goes right into the XLR port on the C200. So I get both video and audio in in one clip, and I like yeah. that a lot. That's awesome, and the t- the ten bit is definitely, I'm sure, has really sped up your uh, workflow because you're not dealing with raw. And unfortunately, Canon's raw does not play well with Final Cut. Uh, I really wish they would upgrade that. Uh, Premiere actually does integrate better with Canon raw, unfortunately. Yeah, I had to download the plugin from Canon site, which was awkward because Canon site kept failing on me. <laughs> but once I got it downloaded, yeah. now it kind of just works. Yeah. Like I I just put it in and it sees uh-huh. it. But you're right, it's not, it doesn't work the way that a normal video well, works. I think I might be a little spoiled because I've worked with RED a lot. Um, and, f- and inside of Final yeah. Cut, RED's RAW codec is amazing. It gives you access to the white balance, to the shutter speed, or uh, the ISO. Um, you can adjust your tint and um, yeah. literally everything you could ever imagine uh, that you would want to change in RAW. It's all just on the info tab, which is great. And... Um, I know raw does yeah. work inside of Final Cut with Canon, but you don't get that kind of ability to no, have yeah. sliders and stuff, um, unfortunately. You have to use the basic controls like an animal. <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. So I did post an AMA on uh, Twitter yesterday. I had a couple of responses. Uh, a, friend of you, uh, a mutual friend of ours, Michael Fisher, who you actually mentioned earlier from yeah. Mr. Mobile, he asked, uh, how do you stay motivated? How do you... He says, I, it feels exhausting the amount of work that you do. How are you able to do all of this work? And we all we both know that Michael is amazingly talented, and he does a lot of his own work himself. Yes. So uh, room to talk, you know, Michael. You're already doing plenty. But still, <laughs> um, I think it's important to talk about because you podcast, you YouTube every day. I mean, it's a lot of work. How, how do you manage all that, and how do you stay sane? So I've always just worked a lot because I, I, I just don't handle boredom well. And so I like to keep busy. And I don't have, like, there. this is a total tangent, but I, I used to have a friend who was a coach to a lot of really, really good fighters. And he said that if you want to be a good fighter, you have to have no vices because any vice that you have will take time away from your fighting. <laughs> and it's sort of like, I, I don't do a lot of other things. I don't have any, like, I don't have kids, you know, I'm single. I just don't have any other demands on my time. And I really love what I do. Yeah. So I wake up, I write, I film, I edit, you know, and I go see family. I go see friends. I do a lot of other things. I watch movies. Um, and I don't stress if I don't get a video done on a certain day, that's fine. Like, I'll, I'll always hit an embargo unless I get hit by a bus. Yeah. But like for normal videos, if I don't finish it in time, it's fine. I'll do it the next day. Uh, and then I just do one thing. It's like, like the one foot after the other. I just one video after the other and I keep yeah. going. I mean, you you are a martial artist and you do play a lot of Pokemon Go. So you do other things. <laughs> um, I listened to your interview with I Justine uh, this week and everybody should go listen to it either on your po- I listened to it on the podcast, oh, but you. Um, you could you can view yeah. it in other ways. But 
I learned something about you that I did not know. You are a martial artist. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah, most of my life, it's it's just one of those things where um, I hate being bored, and that was like the closest you could get to a real life video game. Yeah, and that I think that's just a great way to get your mind off of um, off of the screen and and out. Just yes, being physical, and same for Pokemon Go in a weird way. Um, you are attached to a screen, but you're still out. Yeah. <laughs> are you still an avid Pokemon Go user? I am. Like, it's weird during, like, quarantine time, and they've adopted they've adapted the game a lot, but I've gotten sort of frustrated by their... their so if people aren't familiar, there was this team at Google, and they were in charge of a lot of the Wi-Fi router mapping, and they did basically built Google Maps. And then there was this huge controversy over the data they collected, and they were sort of paid to be, to be quiet about it and go away. And I hope I'm not slandering anybody there. I think that's public knowledge. And they started Niantic, and they made Ingress, which because the people, um, the, the guy who ran the company just loved the idea of location-based gaming. And then they made Pokemon Go. But they're obsessed with this random number generation. And in most video games, there's like a mercy system, which is like there's a random chance to do something, but if you fail at it a lot, the game doesn't want you to quit, doesn't want you to get frustrated and quit, so it'll make things a little bit easier. And, and or if it's too easy for you, it'll make it a little bit harder. And they want this sweet spot where you're never like, you never think the game is boring, but you never think the game is like taking advantage of you. And Pokemon Go is like, they're absolutists about random number generation. So I play with my god kids a lot who are young and they have a hard time understanding that. If they like do something a hundred times and it fails a hundred times, but someone else succeeded 30 times, they just think it's unfair. And that's a bad re- that's a bad sentiment to build up in your player base. And they seem not to care. And it's not so much I don't like the mechanic as I don't like them not caring about it. Yeah, I mean, especially for children, I think it. Yeah, there almost should be a a parent control mode where you can kind of turn that on and and off. Maybe I don't. That would be cheating. And but well, the old like the real Pokemon, they just built in mechanics that would handle it. Like um, there's this concept of shiny Pokemon, and you have like a one in five hundred and twelve chance okay. of getting one, which is a lot yeah. for a kid. But if you purposefully only catch that Pokemon over and over again, the odds would go down and down. It was like a yeah. linking system, so that if you really wanted it, there was a way for you to get it outside of random chance. And I think that always makes. Are you for referring a to game. the uh, Game Boy and uh, Nintendo DS games? <laughs> yes, <laughs> I love those games. Yeah. I actually I don't know if you saw on my Twitter, but I just purchased a um, a modified Game Boy Advance, and I'm totally loving it. I did see that. It's a uh, Basically, there's this whole new... I don't know if you follow the retro gaming scene, but there's a ton of great stuff. A little bit. But the you can get a Game Boy Advance now and uh, replace the awful... Uh, you know, non-backlit d- d- display yeah. and put a modern IPS uh, screen in there. And it's super bright. I have brightness control, rechargeable battery that lasts nine hours on it. That's um, awesome. And it's like, this is the way this was supposed to be played. Because I, I owned an SP, but it was too small and cramped for my hands. And I, I did enjoy, yeah, I yeah, enjoyed yeah. the fact that it was a clamshell and it would protect the screen from scratches. But um, I, I always preferred that original GBA design it feels better in the hands and the shoulder buttons are much better. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so anyways, I'm totally rediscovering all these old games. I'm, you know, Wario or Wario wear or whatever. And, uh, I've got Mario golf right now and I I need to get Emerald, uh, on GBA for sure. But, um, so (laughs) another question that we had, uh, on Twitter, uh, M Brandon Lee from this is tech today, another good friend of ours. Yeah, Um, He's awesome. How's it been going on his own? What is, your reason for it and what are some of the things you've learned hard and good from from it so far and we have covered some of this but yeah so learning is hard because i feel like i i don't understand youtube yet and i, and I know that's a not a unique sentiment but it's just like what like, youtube for example they my uh my analytics just changed and now there's this big graph that shows when my viewers are watching my videos but underneath it it says don't pay attention to this because uh upload time has no bearing on overall view count over time and i'm like what are you telling me here <laughs> that most of my people are watching at this time but i shouldn't pay attention to it so you felt like you got so many complaints that you gave me this but now you don't want me to use it <laughs> So like, like what time am I supposed to upload? I don't see any better. And it's just that sort of like, do I do videos every day? Like, and some people say do videos on the same topic every day. And some people say if a video is doing good or doing very well, don't put a new video out. Wait, but if a video is doing really badly, then put a new video out. And some people say, change, like have three or five fun thumbnails ready and three or five titles and sit there in analytics and watch and change the thumbnail, change the title until one starts, starts taking off. And it's just so many 
it's almost like we're all blind trying to, des- trying to describe an <laughs> elephant, but the elephant keeps shape changing as we're touching it. And like now it's a moose. And <laughs> yeah. it, so I'm learning how much I don't know, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Like I'm really stripping away to absolute ignorance on this topic and then slowly trying to learn as much as I can. <laughs> I mean, there are some people like Mr. Beast who have definitely cracked the code. Um, and there are some people... Uh, like Daryl Eves, I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he's yeah. uh, the creator of Vid Summit, which is a big event that used to happen when people used to be allowed to gather uh, in groups and yeah. s- shake each other's hands and uh, look people in the eyeballs and not over a screen. Um, do you remember those days? <laughs> yeah, um, vaguely. Uh, yeah. VidCon is coming up, right? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, but even then still, it's it's so nutty and weird. It's crazy how... Uh, the platform could be one way one day and then literally a switch could be flipped and it's completely different, but that's the nature of it. And I enjoy it just as much as a video game in a lot of ways. It's, it is fun. And, um, if you're a person who enjoys the analytics, then you're going to thrive on YouTube. Um, if you're somebody who just wants to be a creator, uh, and an artist, uh, maybe find an analytic person. (laughs) because uh yeah i mean but like some of the things like that like one out of 10 or 10 out of 10 thing Mm -hmm. that is like anxiety in a box yeah and then sometimes it says 10 out of 10 but then you later find out their analytics was broken and it was really two out of 10 and the numbers (laughs) just come back later and and i wonder if they're running stanford prison experiments on us (laughs) (laughs) well it's frustrating because i I've been experimenting with different types of content. I did these parodies and I've just loved making these parodies about tech and it's so fun and entertaining yeah. uh, for me to do, but nobody on my channel seems to discover the videos. They have a fraction of the views on, uh, if I just reviewed a camera and, um, it's frustrating cause you want to, sometimes you, you build something as an artist and it's a, a thing that you made and it just doesn't get the uh, the attention or the you know views that you're expecting. But um, I think it's important to remember that uh, you know I interviewed uh, Caleb Pike on this show a couple weeks ago, and he said yeah. something really great um, from DSLR Video Shooter. He's been on it on YouTube for over ten years now, and he said he thinks about YouTube as owning a stock in a company, and you're gonna have highs and lows. But this is a long game, and he's like, he just treats his day like a nine to five job. He says it's kind of boring, but you know, when five rolls around and I'm not finished with my video, I have something to look forward to the next day. And I go to sleep and I wake up and I, I'm excited to go back to work. And I, I, I don't function that way. I'm more of like quick bursts yeah. of like excitement. <laughs> but um, but I think it is important to remember this is a long game. And I mean, surely you've experienced that over the years, you know, the early yeah. stages, you have big moments of growth. Like even right now, I can imagine it's exciting. You're, you're starting fresh. You're seeing growth. That's probably exciting, but there, it will plateau at a certain point, and you're gonna. I think it has. <laughs> well, I'm just saying, I'd, and I hope you don't take offense to that. I'm just saying that's the the nature of these things, right? Yeah, of and course, it, yeah. Sometimes it can affect your brain and your your mental well being. You know, have you struggled with yeah the, the mental aspect of you're basically playing you're gambling in a lot of ways. It's like going to Vegas or something almost <laughs> doing this. Yeah, it's. The only thing that bothered me at first was the lack of control. And I got used to that from Google because it would happen with like my old, like with iMore, but like the, there'd be a Google change and we'd lose search authority and a bunch of articles would go down and we'd lose a ton of views. Uh, and you had to like figure out what did they change. And so before they like, oh, they want to put, they want to put you in a snippet and the snippet took all your traffic away, but this snippet gave you tons of traffic. And uh, it was the same with YouTube. It's like I would do, Apple would announce something. I would do a video based on the announcement and it would be huge numbers. And then I'd actually get the device and do like a review on it. And it wouldn't be as many. I'm like, but now I actually have it. I was like, <laughs> that was just an off the cuff yeah. half an hour video. This one I spent days on and nobody, and like it didn't even, you didn't even show it to anybody. And I realized that it's just like, it's not in my control. And then you become like very um, Chan Buddhist or very Maya Angelou about it. And you just realize that, you know, I've put this thing out into the world. What the world does with it is up to the world, not up to me. And I can try to learn from it and do better next time. But ultimately, there's like so many like butterfly effect level forces working out there that there's there's no real control that I have. I can just try my best and try better each time. We interviewed uh, Chris and uh, Chris Howe and Lizzie Pierce, and one thing that he said really yeah. stuck with me. He said. Um, 
really think of every view count as a person. It might not necessarily, you know, they might come in for 30 seconds and dip out, but for all intents and purposes, you're really looking at a a real person. That's not just a number. And imagine being in a football stadium with 10,000 people sitting there watching your video, uh, you know, on the Megatron screen. I mean, imagine that. And um, we can get wrapped up in that, but it comes back to the gratitude of and the, the amazing time we're living in of, you know, 20 years ago, this was impossible to have an audience like this. And uh, you'd have to be a broadcast company and be the anchor person chosen by that broadcast company. And uh, Leo Laporte, I hear him sometimes talk about that past in the video, in his yeah. content. He'll often say, man, it's amazing what you can do now on your phone, have your own radio show. I remember spending you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars just to broadcast live, you know, audio. And now you're able yep. to stream 4K from your phone <laughs> or whatever, right? So yeah, the democratization of the internet. I can't wait for uh, 5G to become a thing. Can you imagine? <laughs> I uh, I think what, I mean, this is just speculation, but I think it's the future for sure is um, proper cameras like a RED or an RE or yeah. even all down, down to Canon having 5G built into it. And imagine that sending, you know, a 10-bit file over 5G in the middle of the shoot to the editor so they can literally edit live as you're shooting. <laughs> That's what blows yeah, your mean, mind to think it's, about. But. It's amazing how far we and we're doing we're like I remember Callie Lewis back then, Luria Petrucci now, like going live on her N95, you know, her Nokia N95 back in the early <laughs> early days of tech. And wow. now like FaceTime is commonplace and going live on like Instagram or YouTube is everyone's doing it right now and it just changed and people are dropboxing well dropboxing but also airdropping footage right off their iphone or pulling it off of icloud and 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 that's just phone footage for now but like you said and not just 5g because the latest wireless standards too like 802.11 ax and ay are so fast that maybe the physical media like i'll just be shooting on my canon it'll record to my nas and be instantly available to edit on my computer it's just going to change so much again. I know. I think just like Uber and podcasting with LTE speeds, yeah. I think there's going to be new companies that are going to come out that we could only imagine with the combination of AR and uh, and super fast yeah. 5G or whatever. Hopefully, our brains don't melt from it, yeah. but we'll see, right? <laughs> well, that's the thing. Is like these 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 radio signals have always been there. They're just putting different data on them. So like our microwaves didn't kill us and like FM and AM radio didn't and TV didn't and all the military bands didn't. So now they're just being better about packetizing data over those bands. I think we have other other things that are killing us right now that should be taken care of first. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, one more question from Jay Pandia from Twitter. He says, um, what tech do you deem essential or needed for people working from home in 2020? I think that, you know, it, basically an internet connection and some type of computer, I guess it really depends on what you're doing. Like if you're doing an office job, like maybe a Chromebook or you're a student, maybe a Chromebook is fine. If you're doing uh, audio or video editing or f- like photography, maybe you need Lightroom or, uh, you know, Logic or Premiere or something like that. I think mostly like I can't imagine going through what we're going through now if we didn't have the internet and connected devices like our phones or our tablets or our computers it would just be like we'd all be knitting basically like there'd be so many sweaters we'd be drowning in sweaters and scarves so i think like i think it's the non-technology stuff that's important is that it's so easy to just sit there and stream netflix or be on zoom calls or be you know stuck in google docs or something that it's really putting the tech aside leaving your phone across the room maybe having your watch on for emergencies but just getting up you know, treating other humans like humans, going out every you know when it's safe to do so, getting a little bit of exercise. It's all. I think the tech stuff is so well done now that we have to we have to make sure we take care of the human part. Absolutely. Now, this is a question for me. If I were tweeting myself, I would ask, "Where do you keep your dock? The middle, left, right? Is it set to auto hide? Do you have the uh, the animation where it magnifies itself?" <laughs> So I I put the dock on the left. Um, Me too. Oh, really? Yeah. So I put it on the left because like I'm right handed. And so like the right side of my screen just seems clear to me. I do have it like a a little bit big because like I have it magnify a little bit just so I'm absolutely sure what icon 
I tap on it and I don't auto hide it because it takes too long to unhide when I want to tap on things. <laughs> Such a nerdy but amazing question. I put it on the left because my setup is a dual screen setup. I have my laptop oh, um, nice. on the table, just flat on the table. And then I have my um, screen directly above it. And I really like that because I've always hated the dual monitor setup where I'm looking to my left and my right and my neck Me hurts. Too. And you're looking at a... Me too, exactly. Yeah, you're looking at like a split down the middle. I don't know why anybody would yep. want to look at that. Um, so yeah, so I, I love the ability to just scroll straight up with my mouse. I'm on the top yep. of my nice monitor and I scroll straight down. I have my iMessage and Twitter and email on the bottom. I have my final cut on the top. It's great. And then if you have the dock in the middle, you can't access it, uh, f as you're going between those two. So, um, I do have it set to high. And it cuts the horizontal screen resolution, which is much lower than the vertical screen resolution. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. I do have it set to hide because I do use laptop mode often without my extra display. So I, I oh, just, nice. yeah. I want to have as much screen real estate as possible, but that's the only reason if, if I had a bigger screen, maybe I'd keep it there. But, um, I do use some apps from uh, set, uh, what's it called set app. Is that it? The subscription. Yeah. Um, and I have one that will hide my, uh, desktop icons cause I have way too many things on my desktop yeah yeah i feel you <laughs> so to kind of close this out i'd love for you to just kind of um give any advice that you would have for somebody who's starting out you know imagine a young renee um in 2020 who's who looks up to you and and wants to be doing what you're doing what's kind of your word of advice to people who who want to get into tech journalism and and be a content creator like yourself so and, and this will sound corny um but it, it's really been what i've done and that is just do it like if you want to write write a lot you know just keep writing because it, it it's one of those things like chopping wood that you just have to work your way through if you want to do podcasts the first one all of our first podcasts sucked like you can go back and find anybody's first podcast they were terrible but they stuck with it you know my first videos beyond horrible they're all you can go find them on the iphone blog channel i'm sure ridiculously bad keep with it it's that really famous gracie jujitsu saying where like a black the only difference between a black belt and a white belt is the black belt never quit and i think that's so true it's just like and then don't expect anything because like a lot of people start off and if their first video or their second video isn't great if they can't get like marquez to retweet it if it doesn't like immediately get linked from the verge they think like the world has betrayed them and like nobody owes anybody anything the only thing that gets attention is really good quality work. And we all know what it feels like for like not to get attention for something that we think is really good and we worked really hard on. But the only thing you can do is is do a better one, like do another one, another 10, another 100. And if you're consistently good, you know, you, people will start to see what you're doing. Amazing uh, way to close us out. Thank you, Renee. Everybody go follow Renee everywhere at Renee Ritchie, web, uh, Renee Ritchie <laughs> dot com is that right or I, net? net and dot com go to the same Perfect. place you got both i tried yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah so renee ritchie's youtube channel renee ritchie on twitter that's the ideal setup right so you have it everywhere with no underscores no periods nothing it's just clean and simple that's what you want so we're boring but i'm, I'm happy that you said it that way <laughs> well i'm obsessed i still have an underscore on my instagram account and it's oh. driving me crazy there's like a dead account with zero followers with an underscore at the end of dave mays and it's someone killing who's me. listening help him with that please <laughs> please anybody at instagram please help me um well thank you renee uh again for being on the show it was definitely a treat for me again being a fan all these years so i really appreciate your time thank you so much no thank you so much for having me i really it was a great conversation i really appreciate it I hope you guys enjoyed my conversation with Renee Ritchie. Hopefully some of the topics were interesting to you guys. Often Renee talks about Apple technology and consumer electronics. So I wanted to dive deeper into his creative process and figure out how he shoots his videos, talk about his gear, some of the things that I think a lot of people don't know about Renee. So hopefully you learned some insight if you're already a Renee fan. And if you're not a Renee fan, again, I want to encourage you to go to ReneeRitchie.com and subscribe to his YouTube channel, follow his podcast, if you want to just listen to the audio form of his YouTube videos, they're a great way to digest his daily content. He's putting out stuff all the time. Incredible content. I can't recommend Renee enough. Go give him a follow if you haven't already. And once again, if you've come to the end of this podcast, I would like to remind you to please subscribe to this podcast. Every subscription counts and it really helps share this podcast out with other people who might be interested in this type of content. So please subscribe in your podcast player of choice and tell a friend if you enjoyed this episode.
Once again, I'm your host, Dave Mays. This is the Golden Hour Podcast produced by the Polar Pro Studio. We'll see you next Tuesday.